0: Hi everyone, this is Karen. I just wanted to say that this episode was recorded on March 12th, 2020, before um UBC Library, where we were recording, was closed to the public and uh, before we were all encouraged to stay home and physically distance from one another. Allison and I are hoping to record an episode kind of talking about the interviews that we've had in 2020 so far and what's going to happen moving forward or what thoughts we have, um, since listening to the, like, looking forward to 2020 episode that we put out, um, again, um, things have changed a lot, um, so yes, I wanted to say that this episode was recorded, um, before we knew that BCLA, the conference, was cancelled, and while I was editing that, um, I don't remember when because time is fake now. When I was recording that, we were all encouraged to stay home, I think, or something was happening. So this episode is very much kind of stitched together, um, and you can very much hear it in the audio quality. But yeah, I thought I would say that. Stay home, be safe, be well, enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Organizing Ideas Podcast. I'm Karen. This podcast is hosted by myself and Allison, and we are two new librarians and archivists and your hosts for this podcast. Together, we're taking a closer look at the relationships between organizing information and community organizing, how libraries and archives are never neutral, and what we mean when we say that knowledge is power. We are recording on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. In this episode, I spoke to three librarians from grassroots community libraries in preparation for the BCLA, the British Columbia Library Association Conference, uh, which was supposed to be um, from April 15th to 17th, 2020 in Richmond. Um, And the theme for the conference was Libraries, Democracy and Action. I was supposed to be moderating our discussion panel titled Collections in Social Movements, Grassroots Libraries in Marginalized Communities. So due to the COVID-19 situation, the BCLA conference is cancelled, but we did record this episode um, as a way for the speakers to get to know each other as and also as a way to talk through our expectations and plans for the session because we had some... Um, things to talk about in regards to accessibility, professionalization, as well as who is our target audience and what it means for grassroots and more politically explicit libraries to be present at a conference, especially in the context of democracy in action as the theme. Um, for this episode, um, I had Evie Trong from Joss Paper Library. Avi Grenner from Out on the Shelves Library and Rachel Lau from Queer Reads Library in a conversation around how grassroots collections can help and enable marginalized communities to understand social movements and their relationship to these events. I should also make a note that Avi was joining us uh, through Skype, so that's why there um, might be a difference in audio. So Joss Paper Library or JPL is a research collective focusing on self and independently published works centering around the Asian diaspora and works to build capacity to recenter marginalized voices. Queer Reads Library QRL is a mobile collection of books and independently published scenes centered around queer subjectivity. And Out on the Shelves or OOTS is a nonprofit, community-led and volunteer-run library committed to anti-oppressive social justice work. Evie Trong is a second-generation Vietnamese settler whose work takes place on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of the Coast Salish peoples, including the three title-holding nations Musqueam, Squamish, tsleil and Kikite First Nations. She is the librarian of Joss Paper Library, which is a research collective and community-led library located in Vancouver's Chinatown. Focusing on creating avenues for equitable research practices, her primary interests are in information studies, digital stewardship, and community-led archival preservation projects. Rachel Lau is a Han Chinese settler artist, writer, zinster, and audio storyteller based in what's colonially known as Vancouver. They are currently pursuing a degree in the Bachelor of Media Studies program at UBC with a minor in Asian Canadian and Asian Migration Studies. They are a co-librarian of Queer Reads Library, Lào Dong Yù Ho, a mobile library of queer books and zines started in Hong Kong, along with friends and collaborators Beatrix Peng and Caitlin Chan. Most days, they can be found daydreaming on public transit about the Cantonese diaspora and queer futurisms. Avi Grunner is a queer Jewish-American settler living, studying, and working on Musqueam Land. They are a technical services student librarian with Huihua Library and volunteer co-coordinator, Without on the Shelves, a community-led LGBT2QIA plus library. Avi's interests include the intersection of pop culture and political resistance, crip theory, restorative justice, and the exploration of gender, sexuality, and cultural identity through D&D. Nearing the completion of UBC's dual Master of Archival Studies and Master of Library and Information Studies program, Avi is focusing on the creation, adaptation, and use of equitable knowledge organization systems, and searching for avenues to develop their practice of advocacy and allyship. Cool. So maybe to start the conversation, is there anything else you'd like to add about yourself or any other introductory information about the organization you represent that you'd like listeners to know?
1: I can start. Mm -hmm. I think something that's really crucial to mention about Queer Reads Library specifically is actually how we began. And so we began because the Hong Kong Public Library had banned 10 LGBTQ-themed children's books and put them into quote-unquote closed stacks in 2018. Mm -hmm. And so Beatrix Pang and Caitlin Chan, my friends and collaborators of Queries library, had started QRL in response to what had happened to not only say, you know, what is a library and what is allowed to be put into a library, but also to say if you are not going to include queer people and narratives into the space of a library, the Hong Kong Public Library specifically, we're going to make our own. Mm -hmm. So I think that is an important note when thinking about the origins of QRL and how we began.
2: Yeah. Hi again. (laughs) Evie Trong. I collaborate with uh, Christina Lee, who is like a good friend of mine and who's been a community organizer and an urban planner in Vancouver for, for a very long time such a such a good friend of mine, and I think, for me, coming into j p l and the project that i do like my my side of the story was that like I was studying English literature at u b c and I always felt very like this this push to fit and conform into like this certain body of literature. That I couldn't articulate my discomfort, and so it wasn't until I started working with artist-run centres and different nonprofits around Vancouver and Chinatown, where I was able to be exposed to like another, like, alternative literature to what does it mean to like be a settler, or what does it mean to be a Canadian as a very specific uh, political project, and so resisting the kind of narratives that I've been. Uh, taught to embrace uh, I decided to reject (laughs) and so JPL is like an accumulation of a lot of my interests as well as Christina's uh, into really embracing what embracing and redefining what diasporic literatures mean within the Asian diaspora and also embracing like a very alternative way of thinking about collections and um, literature and art and what is produced on a very community grassroots level. So
1: yeah. I've always been curious about yeah. the name of JPL. because, grass Paper Library. Yeah. yeah okay. Because,
2: okay like, I don't know where like when to like talk about Joss <laughs> Paper Library. So yeah. okay. So for folks who, like, don't know what Joss paper is, so Joss paper is, like, um, the paper that you burn for your ancestors. Uh, it's, like, really common in East and Southeast Asian cultures. And so the reason why we decided to go with Joss paper library was because as people who are distinctly diasporic and who live in a colonial settler state what are the ways in which we also embrace our culture, but also it's tied to like our ancestors, it's tied to how we relate to our cultural histories and choosing to redefine that for ourselves within this kind of structure of like a library, right? And so Joss paper really being symbolic for our tied relationships to what we consider our homelands, but also where we are situated now and just kind of embracing that kind of that cultural practice
1: so that's why we chose joss paper yeah yeah that's so interesting because like i can totally hear an auntie just giving you flack about like oh but it's (laughs) related to death and dying and like like, why would you name something like that but i also like i think from my perspective like taking my auntie hat off yeah i think like (laughs) no keep it on (laughs) (laughs) um i think that that's really interesting to say like Yes, we understand that Mm -hmm. about, you know, the taboo around death in in our cultures. But at the same time, like, this is who we are. and This is what we think of it. And this is our, you know, new connection to this concept of Joss paper and how it relates to our ancestors and our cultures. And so we're leaning into that.
2: And another, I think, important thing to kind of add about Joss paper, too, is that it's very, in its nature, an ephemeral object. And so thinking about what we collect, too, which is alternative literature, zines, and monographs and uh, artist works, there is, like, this kind of ephemerality around it, too, just because zines are not dictated by publishing companies. They're dictated by what people want to express and talk about. And so embracing, again, this idea, like, of ephemeral literatures, we found that really resonant in Joss paper as well.
1: I like that a lot.
3: Thanks. Thanks, thanks, Homie. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I I really love that, and it kind of is hitting on these things that I've been thinking about lately. With out on the shelves, because we have this past self that was really rooted in the community on Davy Street, and with the community center in the '80s, and then we have this kind of distinct other era that we're in right now, where kind of students are leading the way with it. And I do think there's something about that history that we're still trying to figure out how to keep connecting to it because a lot of the the motivation for keeping it going is this idea that we will, like, this generation is almost losing the connection with uh, our, like, queer history uh, and that community and kind of trying to, like, bridge the gap between those. Uh, I don't know if any of that made sense. (laughs)
0: Well, that makes sense with, like, different waves of, like, people taking ownership or, like, organizing certain spaces and, yeah.
1: Yeah, it also makes me think about, you know, Avi and Evie, what you're saying about sort of histories It's making me think about how archives and collections operate in maintaining history or not maintaining history, mm-hmm. right? And so you know avi you're talking about sort of like queer histories and and those and those generations of like what work has been done or what we are talking about and i think Evie, you're talking about like diasporic histories or like our ancestral histories Mm -hmm. pertaining to especially like asian cultures and i think in the context of cure what i'm thinking about is maybe not so much about perhaps what is maintained in the archives to document history but what actually left out of the archives, especially given that the library was started because there was a book banning, essentially. So it's like, Mm -hmm. when those things are missing, or they're hidden, or they're barred from access, then what does that tell us about what we see as worthwhile of keeping and documenting? Mm -hmm. Because I always think that, like, archives and collections, what's in it, and what's not in it, like, Mm -hmm. says just as much about it. Well, I mean, like, Just for you giving us like
2: the context of QRL's existence and everything comes from a very like politically loaded context. And I really like appreciate the fact that you folks have really embraced that, especially because I think that like what. Christina and I have been really vocal about with JPL is that building a collection is a very political act. And again, just saying like, what we do and how we do it within these contexts are not neutral by any means. And so what does it mean to really ask ourselves to build out a collection or to really think about what's what we can and cannot provide, given the certain context in which we exist as librarians or community organizer or archivists?
0: My next question was like, who is your library for? And my thinking behind this question, like with, you know, who are the communities that you're envisioning when you're building collections or when you're working on programming or what types of materials you're collecting and what types of relationships are you working on, who you're working in community with and why is it important that JPL, QRL, and OOTS are explicit about this. My thinking behind this is also the conference theme on democracy and, you know, if democracy is for prioritizing people's voices, who are you thinking of?
2: Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had this conversation with Christina, like, really early on when we were at the planning stages of what our mandate was going to be about and everything. And I... I'm very explicit in saying that Joss Super Library is not a public library, it is a community library. And so, you know, just thinking about what public libraries do and how they serve folks, you know, ideally for like very large publics right like you'd be it's hard to kind of really estimate like who you are serving but you know every branch has a very specific way of catering to certain communities uh, especially in thinking about the demographics of like where you're located where your branch is etc and then you know with a lot more capacity to serve folks in terms of like having physical space having consistent programming and consistent funding things that JPL or smaller grassroots community libraries don't always have the luxury of obtaining. So, you know, we have to work with not knowing where our space is going to be consistently operated from and thinking about what the funding models look like for us, oftentimes being through cultural services, through city grants, or, you know, just broadly speaking, the grant system, which is not easy to navigate at all. But, you know, thinking about what is a community, like... Christina and myself we've been a part of Chinatown organizing in various capacities for quite a bit over the years and so we we had this conversation about what what we thought were the cultural gaps in our community and also thinking about what is it that we want to see and so I pitched the idea of like starting a library just because it embraced a lot of the things that I wanted to see in Chinatown in terms of like being in a space where people can learn and also feel at ease just like being in spaces that don't require us to to have capital as a basis of our relationships right so in terms of like not to say that like like businesses, a lot of businesses in Chinatown really do serve the community, but like in very different ways. And so for us, we wanted to take out like this context of like having to purchase something in order to be in a space, right? And so we were thinking about this library as a space where people can actively learn and engage with a body of work that we were collecting and thought was really important to us, while also having a space where people can just be right. So really embracing that kind of like library model. Mm -hmm. But for us too, just being like myself a second generation Vietnamese settler, I've had to really come to terms with what that identity means for myself. And I know that I'm not the only one having these questions or going through this process of learning and relearning and unlearning. And so the reason why we collect the things that we do is that i think that there's a lot of people within our community within the asian diaspora who are really doing the work of uncovering what this what this community means what it means to be impacted by migration what it means to be to, to experience all the facets of like identity that we do and then centering that as a legitimate body of literature and artwork so for us it's for people who not only make these kind of things, such as like the zines and, and the poetry and the chat books and everything, but also choosing to really center that as the basis for uncovering what it means to be a part of this community.
1: I, I just want to take a moment to dead the idea that the shit we're saying doesn't make sense as people who are, like, not cis men. Yeah. I'm just I'm just going to say flat out right now, all the shit you're saying makes more sense than any other bullshit I've heard men say in, like, the past I think, three years. Do I I like, I, I, like, 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 you want me to keep it You can.
2: Think, fight me. I think I asked did that make sense? Was because, like, I wasn't prepared to say all all that? And then I just was like, you know what? Let's just, like, lean in. I feel safe here, like, talking (laughs) with all you folks. Let's just get into it.
1: (laughs) I think also part of it is, like, I think for me, what I'm learning and recognizing that it's when it's when it's the kind of work that we're doing on a regular basis and things that we're theorizing on a regular basis as much as it sounds like oh am i rambling a bit or am i having all these ideas in reality we've got we've given it so much thought like we're constantly thinking about these things so what feels like rambling is actually like really developed and formed ideas about how we want to pursue our work the Mm -hmm. collections and also like how we want to think critically about the structures that we exist within. So Mm -hmm. I think everything that you've shared sounds really like thoughtful and something that you've engaged with for a while now. And that is manifesting (laughs) as Joss Paper Library. And if I may, I I want to jump on that and talk Mm -hmm. about the audiences for Queer Reads Library and who we had in mind. Yeah. It's really, I think something that I always want to emphasize about Query's library is the mobility. I think the mobility really is a huge aspect of the library and how we think about what we want to do. And so part of it is logistics, which is kind of what Evie was touching on, was like, if you have a space, you need to manage it, right? Like mm-hmm. you need to pay rent, you need to clean it, you need to keep the the water and the electricity keep going. It accessible? Like, yeah. yeah, exactly. And those are really hard things to do like, in in Hong Kong, especially. But mm-hmm. like, let alone Vancouver too. I feel like they are cousins in housing crisis, which is, yeah. you know, kind of funny, but also not at all. So that being said, one part of the mobility of Queries Library was about uh, like feasibility of having a space. But the second part was what's interesting is that. The mobility actually allows us to obviously move around, but vary our audiences because we don't really know where we're going to be or who is going to show up when we get there. And part of the experiment of the library was thinking through, in Hong Kong's context especially, but now that we're international because I'm here in Vancouver, it's a little bit different. But initially, when we were having our different pop-ups, we literally have a suitcase full of books and then we just roll up and we show up and then we set up the (laughs) pop-up and it takes a different form and shape each time. And then nearing the end of our time together, when we were all living in Hong Kong, we were really starting to be more intentional about curating the collection each time for the different venues that we were going to. Uh, But part of the experiment was to think through, you know, where are queer people and queer content welcome in Hong Kong. Who will have us in their spaces and who will show up and read it? Because when you have a physical space, what happens is that you are relying on the fact that people know about the space and then show up at the space. But the beauty of the mobility of the library is that we show up in a space, people show up there, and then people will or will not engage. Maybe they'll walk by a couple of times before they step up, or maybe they are following us on Instagram and they like, we're waiting to see us, right? There's so many variations in terms of who wants to engage with our library. But I think it allows us to take the library outside of the usual context of, you know, quote unquote, the usual suspects of like people who show up to certain kinds of events or spaces and say, you know, we're going to open this up and then whoever engages will. And so in that way, the library is for everybody. Like we kind of have everybody in mind. But at the same time, I think it really is for queer people specifically. And it's specifically... Uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, but especially, like, Asian uh, queer folks, because we started to curate our library very intentionally uh, to focus on Asian queer content, which hasn't necessarily been as well-received. Like, I was at Vancouver Art Book Fair, and somebody had asked me, oh, are you taking contributions for your library? And and I said, yes. And they said, okay, like, is it, like, queer, queer Asian? Like, queer, like, you know, mm-hmm. who are you looking... For work from them like oh we're looking for work from queer asians specifically and they had this face of also disclaimer like i don't think i have to say this, this person was white and then they and they had this face of like oh okay and i'm like yeah. but we're always looking for readers and if your friends want to follow and yeah. like read our library like they totally can and they just like kind of walked away yeah. so i think that like being very intentional and explicit about what you want your community library or collection to do can actually put some people off yeah. Um, and I think that is you know it's important to, for us to ask why Yeah. Uh, but just to finish my thought about Queer Reads Library and who it's for a big part of the library was created when we were thinking through kind of like you know where are the spaces for queer people and this was in the context of Hong Kong but we just thought you know it's either like a dance party something drinking related or other and there's never really any other space outside of kind of like that partying mm-hmm. that queer people can gather so we really wanted to create a space where yes people feel comfortable and that capital is not at the center of the interactions as you're saying Evie so that queer people can just like hang out and that you don't even yeah. buy anything <laughs> in order to be able to gather and you can also be in a sober environment mm-hmm. if that's what you want to do.
0: Avi, do you want to touch on this as well? Because I know that OOTS has moved around a lot and we're not UBC yeah. affiliated, but Oots still is at UBC campus.
3: Yeah, I think that's one of the largest barriers that we have right now is our location and the way that the university is, it's a space that is full of different narratives about what it is and what people here are, and uh, and it's also physically fairly inaccessible, especially with all the construction up all the time around our space. Yeah, so I was kind of relating to this idea of the mobility as a, as an advantage, just because I feel like some of the best connection that we get with people is through events where we're getting out of the library and we're doing, like, in fact, tabling at things and doing outreach. Um, I think that's when we connect with people the most. And, you know, I've always done stuff like, I'll check a book out to you that we have on display if you want a card and say you'll bring it back sometime. Like, I would rather have that be kind of an open space for whatever people are capable of, just because asking them to come to campus can be so difficult. When I was thinking about this question i really feel like there's a few different communities that we're trying to engage with in different ways um and community is such a broad topic and like you were saying about figuring out what a community is i think it's especially difficult when there's so much discourse i guess around it's just there's a, a it's very easy to fall into the trap of of like just say the queer community and assuming that that means something when there are so many diff there's so many varieties of yeah like just just being queer doesn't necessitate like a community perspective and I think that yeah it's kind of a weird default but thinking about this question just I think that the the people that we're imagining ourselves for we're when we're doing our uh, outreach and going to events, I think we're thinking a lot about what it is that a library can bring to the discussion of queer identity. So, like when we're going to Pride, for instance, we're really hoping to be explicit about again, like also what you're saying about your what you're collecting and whose voices you're trying to share and and uphold in your collection so we definitely have been pushing our collection our collecting to kind of go outside the boundaries of what we inherited if that makes sense basically i've been thinking a lot about how the library is trying to be a space for any queer person who wants to come and explore stories and ideas um, and also have that safe place but it's also largely functioning as a space for supporting students like uh, largely library students who are trying to navigate what it means to be a part of these institutions and what it is to kind of dedicate yourself to libraries as this like imaginary of what that means and and then also to have your own perspective and there's so many unexpected things that you encounter when you enter library school uh, and being taught all of these norms, uh, especially by people who often, you know, position themselves as per- progressive in one way or another, but then we're still told that like this is the bottom line of what it is to be in a library and to be doing a library. That can be really hard to adjust to to figure out how to push back if, when you want to push back. And I think that we are kind of, <laughs> the library ends up kind of being a testing ground for those things. To say like, here, while you're still learning, while you're still really exploring, which hopefully we can continue past school, <laughs> but like here's a space to try something new um, and to be surrounded by people who are invested in the idea of looking through these things. So that's also, I think, a role that the library has been taking in the last few years.
0: Yeah, I feel like as like I don't volunteer for Out on the Shelves, Mm -hmm. but like as a library and archives student, it definitely feels like Out on the Shelves is a community for library students to challenge the things that we're learning and being taught in school. And I think that's one of like the pros of being on UBC campus. But then in terms of like, who is the library for? Like, there's so many different audiences. And I think yeah. as a support and like as a testing, not testing ground, but like really as an, as an explorative environment yeah. for students, I think it's a very constructive space.
3: Oh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that that's what people are thinking from outside the co-coordinating bubble.
0: Well, you've been able to like work on that cataloging project as well. So I think that's really great. Um, So in a previous meeting that we all had, we talked about the conference context and accessibility because conferences are often very expensive. Registration can cost hundreds of dollars to cover uh, for booking space, catering, honoraria, which I think is good that they have. I'm thinking about who's going to be at the conference and who's going to be in the room when you're speaking. In a previous episode, we had Ted Lee, who was not the first or the only one who said that the episode on precarious labor that the library and archives field has a race and a gender issue. And I wanted to organize this discussion panel because I think that the work that you all do is very important. BCLA director asked or said they were looking for more student representation in the curation process for the conference. And so I was thinking about what I wanted to see and hear And the work that you're doing with Asian and diaspora and queer communities is interesting to me. And I think also really interesting to my classmates in school. So what does it mean for grassroots libraries to be presenting at a conference at BCLA? And I think my question also relates to professionalization. And we talked about this previously with Evie as well, uh, what it means to do this work. And so what is the work anyway and why do we do it what kind of barriers and challenges are there and what kinds of opportunities are there and for whom and how do issues of cultural fit factor in and you don't have to answer all of this I'm just kind of hoping like
1: something sticks and speaks (laughs) to you (laughs) yeah I wonder if we can just because the the end is like really loaded like the the kind of last couple of questions I wonder if we could center it back to what does it mean for grassroots libraries to be presenting at a conference like BCLA? I feel yeah. like that that feels like a very grounded question to me that I feel like we can that we can speak to we can speak yeah. to and discuss around, and I'm sure the other things will kind of yeah, yeah, come yeah. up as mm-hmm. we talk about
2: it. Yeah, because it's been it's been really interesting for me to be a part of like conferences. So like Karen, I, like again like Karen, thank you so much for like considering our work as legitimate work because I think that oftentimes we like, without the ALA degree, without, like, certain kind of degrees of, like, or or the markers that say that you are or are not a librarian are so artificial. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, like, thank you for, like, tearing that down (laughs) and inviting us to, like, speak at BCLA because it is, like, a very... it's It's a big privilege and to be able to speak about the work that we all do and then see that as legitimate work. But then it's also been really interesting to, like, be undercut in certain ways too excited to be talking at BCLA. I was also invited to chair a session at ACA this year as well, just because uh, someone that I know is going to be delivering a paper there. And uh, she had asked me to chair the, the panel that she was gonna be on. And I think of it as such a wonderful privilege to be able to have these connections with people who see the value of community and grassroots work, but then also seeing that the structures of these conferences can't accommodate or won't accommodate the work that we do so one of the things is that she said she was like oh like it's really important that you know community voices are in spaces like this but at the same time i don't know if it's going to be paid and if that's the case like i literally can't you know take time from work for my day job to be able to chair this and so i i see this like being like a very precarious position where institutions, conferences, universities see the value of our work and yet won't actually fulfill that kind of promise or that kind of appreciation for the work that we do. And so it literally sometimes comes down to like dollars and cents, right? Like what can I actually give given the limitations of how I can be accommodated as a community organizer, as a librarian, as someone who's doing this kind of work. I had applied for a grant through BCLA. And I had also emailed a follow-up to be like, hey, I understand that this grant deadline is due already. Like, I already sent my application in. We really need this funding. Like, where are you in the kind of, in the stages of reviewing the grants that you've put out? And I've heard nothing from BCLA. And so this is a little bit frustrating for me because, again, being on the grant system and having to rely on these funds we really need to hear back from these institutions and if they really say that they want to support us then they really need to deliver on what that looks like and so it's just been a little bit frustrating for me to you know do the work of writing a whole grant they did say that it was a low barrier grant i understand that i should have at least like gotten a courtesy rejection letter <laughs> like if anything right because i understand that with the grant system a lot of people are applying i completely understand that at the same time it's really hard because a lot of people do rely on these funds in order to get programming out in order to sustain ourselves and so the fact that I wasn't able I didn't get word from anyone at BCLA has been actually really disappointing to me so there's this one so like on one hand it's like the inability for large institutions to accommodate grassroots work Although saying that they appreciate and understand the value of it. And then also, in this case, not being able to get the funds that we need to on like a more holistic level and then really having to come back to this like conversation again is like do you actually see that our work is legitimate do you actually see that our work is valuable and how are you going to value that so this is like kind of like the very frustrating position that I think I've been put into and a lot of other people have been put into as well where it comes down to funding and what it actually means to work with or in tandem with with larger institutional bodies mm-hmm. yeah, i didn't hear back from bcla at all it was yeah, a really it disappointing sucks. yeah sucks. i was actually re- like i had sent a follow-up email too and it was like nothing mm-hmm. <laughs> so i don't know like if i'm gonna like be at BC- bcla at this like <laughs> <Demanding> discussion <you. laughs> panel being like so where is like one my money and or my rejection letter <laughs> like right. like i want more accountability with these with these institutions right like i want to at least get like a solid no so then i would be able to Move reroute on, or plan convict. yeah or yeah. like make different plans right mm-hmm. and like what sucks is that when i see the initiative of like oots or of uh, qrl We have to work with what we have. And sometimes we don't have a lot. So, like, let's just be real here. Like, we don't always have a lot. So, like, why is it that our labor, even though it's valued, put into such a precarious position where we don't know how we're going to really operate long term?
3: Oh, yeah. Because they're telling you, like, we value it. And the way that we value it is by subsuming you into our existing structure and culture and not by actually... considering how the way that we operate might need to change
1: yeah
3: yeah and i think
1: for me this question about what does it mean for us as grassroots libraries collections to be presenting at bcla i think what comes up for me is questions about tokenization Mm -hmm. and even the fact that they were looking for more student representation at the conference that that to me raises some flags about like You know, if you're looking for student representation, what does representation for you mean? Does that mean just like simply having one segment, you know, tacked on at some point in the day in Mm. which students organize, you know, a panel? And not to say that you doing this organizing work is not important, Karen, but it's more about what you know, Abby is saying is like, oh yeah, we value your work, but not enough mm-hmm. for us to make any kind of meaningful or structural change, right? Because I could imagine student representation could also mean incorporating students into like the entire organizing process, right? And having them dictate, you know, how that conference goes or how we can make it more accessible, right? Because when we were discussing how could we make our panel specifically more accessible, I think we were met with a lot of no's or, like, oh, I don't know if that's going to work. Like a lot
0: of resistance. Or, like, yeah. no, I don't know if
1: it's resistance, but, like, we've never done that before. So we're yeah. not
0: prepared to do it
1: this year. In terms of live streaming,
0: like, the technological...
1: Right, or making too. our segment particularly open i remember that was one of the options Mm -hmm. we talked about too like the conference itself you need to pay but we said oh can we make our session specifically open to the public and to everybody and i think Mm -hmm. we received something with like fire hazard
0: fire insurance hazard like they need to know how many people will be in the space which
1: to me feels weird like it's just (laughs) like it's at you know it's at a hotel and hotels usually accommodate a, a large amount of people do you expect like a like you know like a soccer field worth (laughs) of people coming into the space like i just think that some of these reasons that they're giving us are not necessarily that strong yeah like yeah so yeah back to the idea of like tokenization is that like yes they value our work and i think that the work that we're all doing is really important and i really admire everything everyone is doing here but it's the question of like Are the people who are gonna be at the conference, do they see us as the same? Or is it just going to be some segment where like, oh well that's nifty? Okay. That's cute. Yeah. Yeah." I can't wait for the lunch portion of the (laughs) conference because I'm kind of falling asleep a little bit. And like and then go back to the libraries or the institutions that they're working for and do and and you know, do as they have always been doing already, which has so many problems. And the reason arguably the reason why organizations like us exist i mean i could say that for for qrl for sure is like yeah there was something really really wrong about what the public library was doing and this is why we exist so i think one of the things that i'm really concerned about is 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 being tokenized and not actually having our perspectives valued but at the same time i'm hopeful and i want to say that like maybe this will really change how people think about libraries and what they can do and hopefully that will. Enact institutional change But yeah I'm always So fraught about this idea Of legibility and making ourselves Legible to institutions it's Like what's the point Like is it actually going to serve us Or is it mm-hmm. just Being subsumed into The institutional structure And that we actually Just can't rely on yeah. um, Making ourselves legible to Institutions because it might not Actually spark change Mm-hmm
3: Yeah, 100%. Um, Yeah, I think, yeah, that that is really my main question is just, like, why are we here and what are we doing and who's going to be listening to us? Mm
0: -hmm. Because on one hand, like, I want to hear from all of you, but then I'm also conscious of who will you be speaking to and
1: yeah oh and also God. like
0: why is it important that you speak in a conference
1: right is is speaking at a conference sort of like the height of what we could be doing want, with their organizations? i don't think that's true right. I, I don't no, think i don't think
2: so either i think it's just like oh BCLA, that's cute i think it's very, I think it's very <laughs> I think problematic like, turning the like... tables you know <laughs> no well like i like i don't think. I don't think BCLA or like being at look not BCLA specifically, but like conferences more broadly speaking. I don't think that should be the marker of one's professional life, and I don't think it it, it is. But and I, think I think it is for some people. Like, and I and I understand that, right? But then at the same time, like just seeing the way that people have. Just doing the work and really centering their communities—that I think is so important. Like, I don't think we invest time and energy into our community So we're like, oh, we can present at a conference now, right? Like, no. But you know, some academics do do that, right? And what happens is that they don't really build any meaningful relationships within the community, and in turn, the community isn't always going to be trusting of you, right? So, like, for me, like, it is a privilege to be able to like speak at speak at conferences so I can tell my parents. And I'm like, hey, I do real library work, you know? <laughs> like, But, like, at the same time, like, I also know that, I also know what my priorities are. And my priorities is, like, is JPL asking the kind of questions that we want to forward within our communities? Are we supporting the people who are already doing the work? Are we going to be able to build a platform for everyone to build upon, right? Because we're, again, like, I don't want to create, like, this or enable this kind of culture of overworking of being competitive of being xyz because it's already so hard to exist in this world (laughs) and so for me i just feel like again it's 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 nice but then i also don't think being ala accredited is the marker of being a librarian right it's like it's thinking about the communities you serve do you really know the people how are you centering your work with the people that you're choosing to center choosing to be in community with and i i say this a lot in terms like these days in terms of like i'm choosing to be in community with you because community is a very active term i don't think it's a passive marker of belonging i think it has to do with how we invest our time with each other and are we building these relationships and so I think that it's important to break the models that we're told to conform into on a professional level. And I understand why they exist. But then at the same time, I also don't want to be stuck in this very insular world where we think that we're doing the work by attending conferences. That's not the point. And so, like, again, just embracing like, the work that we are all doing and also, Karen, your perspectives, like, I appreciate that because I know that I don't have to fit into a particular kind of model to present. You are actively choosing to make space with and for us. So I think, like, that's kind of my perspective coming into BS- BCLA and just conferences more more generally.
1: Yeah, and, and what you're saying, Evie, reminds me of this sort of I don't know if you folks heard the phrase before of like living off of the movement rather yeah. than like living for the movement. Yeah. It's just sort of like you live off the movement by like getting paid for like speaking engagements and like going to conferences and you're like not really living to like change things. You're just living to like keep talking about mm-hmm. changing things, which is what you're saying of like doing the work is not just going to conferences like and community, and talking right? and preaching to the choir. It's like, that's not actually doing the work and, and, What you're saying, Evie, also reminds me of something that a good friend of mine had said, who's also a community organizer, a Korean diasporic community organizer. She said, you know, something that we really need to think about when we are granted the access and privilege of being in institutions and being proximate to institutional privilege like these Mm -hmm. conferences and being able to speak at these conferences is how is that distancing us from our communities Mm -hmm. and who are we who will we become by the time that we exit these institutions Mm -hmm. and I think that was something that really struck me when she said that of like okay then the question becomes how do we maintain our connections to our communities and how do we stay accountable to them and serve them and do the work. Despite being in these institutions. And I think for me, the answer to that question is, how can I be in these institutions, redistribute the resources that have been unjustly barred from communities, and then get out? And take all the things that I've learned and then bring it back to my community. Yeah. And if there are things that my community say, like, this is not going to work. Yeah. This is like super institutional of you. Then be like, mm-hmm. you're right. I have lost sight of that because of my time away and you know you know you know what's best and so it's being responsive to the communities that you serve and being able to be flexible yeah so I think for me that's kind of what I'm thinking about with BCLA is like you know how can I like say my piece so that hopefully it resonates with some people you know (laughs) sticks to their brains but ultimately okay what can I learn from this conference because we've been granted the privilege of being able to attend the other sessions Mm -hmm. and so for me it's like okay what can I take from these sessions and then Mm -hmm. get out and bring it back to my community like I don't really care about being at the conference like oh la la like Mm -hmm. I was at BCLA conference like
2: what I appreciate about you saying that is like it's your community that keeps you accountable and so that I think recenters the work and like asking ourselves like what is it that we're doing and why so I really appreciate that.
1: Yeah. yeah.
3: Again, I just feel like like agreeing with <laughs> mm-hmm. what you're saying. Yeah, the the idea of the community holding you accountable and also trying to hold the professional library community accountable to kind of a greater inclusion, which is not my favorite term.
0: <laughs> if I could interrupt because I'm thinking a lot yeah. about yeah. how if out on the Shelves is a way for us to like reimagine cataloging or like explore with kind of break apart the things that we've been learning. Does that only exist in Out on the Shelves as its own thing? Like can can you we not bring that back to Slace, to the library profession?
3: Yeah, I, I want to be doing that. I hope so. I think it's been very helpful. We've been doing a lot of work with Dr. Bullard as kind of an in-between between between the school and the library. Um, And so I think that she's really spent a lot of her own energy on moving Slice from her own perspective. But I'm also hoping that, yeah, that the people who are a part of Out on the Shelves will be going into their professional lives with kind of a, a more expansive perspective of making sure they can make their own changes or can can try to connect to their own communities wherever they land
0: i'm just mindful of time i feel like yeah. we have a like this was like a nice
1: brainstorming <laughs> I just want to propose, because there's a question at the end of, like, do you have any questions for each other? Mm -hmm. I don't think that this is something that we need to answer, but I Mm -hmm. think something that I would like to throw out there for us to all consider is when we're going into this conference like BCLA that's coming from, presented by an institution, how are we going to take care of one another? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. As people coming from the community, as students that don't necessarily hold as much power as, like, some of the people who are going to be. At this conference or those organizing is like, how do we take care of Mm -hmm. each other?
3: Yeah, thank you. I feel like that's an important thing to to make explicit in what we're doing together. I don't know if I have an answer besides.
1: (laughs) Yeah, just something to think (laughs) think about.
0: As of right now, mid-March, we're not sure what's happening with the British Columbia Library Association conference on democracy. There were a lot of questions I had that we didn't have time to get to with this episode, such as talking about limitations to democracy in collections and how race and queerness are implicated in these discussions and ideas of democracy, you know, especially when we talk about access, equity, inclusion, and well-being. I'm really grateful for this conversation we had about grassroots and community organizing and expectations and positioning towards a conference. Again, not sure what's going to be happening moving forward with the current situation, but I hope that everybody gets the rest and care that they need and deserve. And in the meantime, um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll also have an episode up on an interview that Allison and I had with Sam Popovich on democracy and intellectual freedom. So keep your eyes and ears out for that. To find these folks on social media, Avi is avi so so um, A-V-I underscore O-U-S-L-Y-Y, and Out on the Shelves is Out on the Shelves on Twitter. Evie is Evie Trong, Y-V-Y-T-R-U-O-N-G, and Joss Paper Library is Joss Paper Lib, uh, J-O-S-S-P-A-P-E-R-L-I-B on Twitter. Rachel is Rachel Lau on Twitter, um, spelled H A C H O L A U, and Queer Reads Library is Queer underscore Reads underscore Library on Instagram, and we can be found on Twitter at Organizing Pod. It's organizing with a Z and not an S. Our email is organizingideaspod at gmail dot com, and our website is organizingideaspod dot wordpress.com where you can find links to things and resources mentioned as well as transcripts to the episodes. Bye!